0: Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a podcast by The Local, made possible by our members. Uh, This week we're going to talk about Swedish Easter traditions. We'll discuss a new court ruling allowing demonstrators to burn the Quran, as well as terrorism arrests connected to one such incident. We'll look at a new survey worrying researchers that shows a majority of Swedes prioritise security over democracy. And finally, we'll get our teeth into Swedish attitudes to drugs and whether the country is ever likely to join the many other countries decriminalising the possession and use of illicit substances. I'm Paul Omani and I'm joined today, which is the 6th of April when we're recording this, by James Savage in Stockholm and Becky Waterton and Emma Lovegrain in Malmö. How are you all?
2: Yeah,
3: very well, thanks. I'm more worried about how you are after all this uh, stress trying to set up our new studio.
0: I am struggling, to be honest, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll plow on.
2: You made us get up really early in the morning for this, Paul.
3: <laughs> I know.
4: I'm just happy the tech delay wasn't my fault.
3: <laughs> I could just say for, for, for listeners that it has been quite stressful. So if, it's, if our sound isn't perfect this week, do bear with us.
4: I'm trying to get used to my newfound fame after being on TV over the past week. So it was this programme called Utrikesbron, which is like uh, foreign affairs, basically. Um, and we were talking about Rishi Sunak, the UK prime minister. But it was cool to be on TV and a bit of a change from the podcast and from uh, from working in Malmo. So it was nice to have, you know, a little bit of a change in my work life.
0: It's a pretty big deal to go on, to go on Swedish TV speaking Swedish after only having lived here for three years.
4: It was a bit scary. <laughs> i watching back. I was like, "Oh, I said that wrong. Oh, I said that wrong. Oh, I should have said this instead." So I, I, it was quite
2: painful watching it back. Actually, I don't want to do that again. It's always painful watching yourself, but you were great. Yeah, oh, it was listening
3: to yourself speaking Swedish is always painful, but it's, it's actually listening to yourself speaking Swedish is a really, really good exercise. Mm.
0: Now, given that this episode is going out on Easter Saturday, we're going to start today by looking at how the holiday is celebrated in Sweden. We have an article up on the site about seven traditions that reveal it's Easter in Sweden, and we'll link to it in the notes. But Becky, if you were to pick out three favourites, what would they be?
4: I can honestly say I've never thought about my three favourite things about Easter in Sweden before. Weirdly, my first choice is Puskris, which is these like tweaks with they used to have feathers on with like colorful decorations on that decorate kind of swedish homes and and streets at easter and the reason for this is that unlike the the main shopping street near where i live in malmo in winter they put out these nice fir branches pine branches with little lights in and then they disappear and then you get to easter and they put out these nice little pus with the little eggs everywhere and i just love that everything's suddenly colorful and there's there's brightness and you get this feeling of the weather's getting better and spring's on the way it's sunny Mm. soon you can go outside without like a scarf and a hat and gloves and everything. It's like the first sign of like the joy of spring, the vor ura that we've spoken about before, um, which I think lots of our listeners, especially those of a bit further north, will be able to appreciate this like longing for spring. I also love the uh, posk sharing tradition, which is actually today the day that we're recording is Maundy Thursday which is the day where Swedish children, usually girls, um, will go out dressed up as witches. And it's kind of like a trick-or-treat kind of thing. You know, they'll they'll knock on doors and ask for sweets. But I think that's just a lovely little Swedish tradition that you have the witches go to Blåkulla. So like, what would you call that? Blue Hill or something? At Easter. Which and is,
2: dance with the devil.
4: Yeah, and dance with the devil, which is... Kind of an odd tradition.
3: And Blorkula is a real place, I believe, on Erland, which I learnt for the first time last year.
4: I did not know that. That's cool. It just sounds like a made up place. Like, oh, they go to Blue Hill and dance with the devil.
3: Yeah, a sort of mi- a, a sort of mythical place, kind of like in the in the sky or something, you know, where the tooth fairy come from or whatever. But no, it's actually it's actually a real place in Ireland. So you can actually go to Cutter and uh, dance if you like.
4: When this podcast will go out, it'll be too late. But you can do it next year. I don't know if the I don't know if the devil's there on other days of the year. I think he might just be there on Monday <laughs> Thursday.
2: He's got a very busy schedule. Yeah, he's here. got a lot to do.
4: And I guess my last thing. I'm a bit of a got to grease, which is like I have a sweet tooth. And I just love the fact that you give people eggs full of pick a mix, like paper eggs full of sweets.
0: Thanks for that, Becky. And we'll put a link in the notes to the episode we were talking about from this time last year when we had a chat about Sweden's strange Easter insults tradition. Uh, Okay, on to the news. And this week, the security police, SEPO, announced that they had made five arrests in connection with a terror plot following the burning of the Quran outside of the Turkish embassy in Stockholm in January. What can you tell us about this story, Emma?
2: Okay, so just to recap quickly, so far right activist Rasmus Paludan, he burnt the Quran in January because that's what he loves doing the most. Q big, big outrage in Turkey but also in many other Muslim countries with, um, with demonstrations, people burning the Swedish flag and so on. And the security police, they warned afterwards that it had made Sweden a higher priority target for potential terror attacks. And now earlier this week, they arrested five people on suspicion of planning just that. And they also mm. linked it to that Quran burning. So these five men are suspected of, also having links to violent Islamic extremism. And they were arrested in coordinated raids in Eskilstuna, Linköping and Strängnäs, which are all cities in central Sweden. They were arrested on so-called reasonable suspicion, which is the lower degree of suspicion in Swedish law. So that's important to, Mm. to bear in mind. And the security service also said that they didn't believe that an attack was imminent in this case. But they argued that in, in their role, they have to step in early to avert any potential threats. So they can't just sit back and, and wait. When this podcast airs, we might know more about this because the prosecutor had Friday as their deadline for asking the court to remand them in custody. And that's usually the point in the Swedish court process when at least a bit more information gets released because at the moment we don't have a lot of information at all really but that said they could also decide to let them go in which case we probably won't have more information so at the time of recording we don't really know that but Mm. what i think is interesting about this case is more the fact that um, the security service and the police are clearly carrying out quite a lot of intelligence work right now behind the scenes and they're also, clearly focusing on specific acts that could be planned in retaliation of this Quran burning.
0: And this story came on the same day that an administrative court ruled that the police had been wrong not to grant permits to demonstrators planning to burn copies of Islam's holy book outside the embassies of Iraq and again Turkey in February. Why did the court side with the demonstrators planning to burn the Quran?
2: Uh, so. After that Paludan incident, police refused to give other demonstrators permission to burn the Quran, and they cited this increased threat of terror attacks. And in Sweden, it's extremely hard to reject demonstration permits. You can basically only do it if there's a real risk that the demonstrations could be a threat to public order or to security. And the police argued that this risk existed. Because of the th- terror threat. But the court found that there had to be even more concrete evidence of security risks for them to be able to prevent the demonstrations from going ahead. So, an overall terror threat is not enough. Like, you'd have to be able to show that there's a security threat that's linked to the specific demonstration in question, mm. that something's likely to happen at or in very close connection with that demonstration. Right. And I've seen it being reported in some places, by the way, as like a Swedish court rules that Quran burnings are always okay. That's not the case. That's not what's happened. This court ruling applies to two specific demonstrations. And the police might also appeal the ruling to the appeals court. So we haven't seen the end of this yet.
0: Okay. And it's curious how we were discussing this exact same issue last April when there were riots following Rasmus Paladin's quran burning demos in several Swedish cities. And we had a good discussion back then with the journalist Bilan Osman about uh, the free speech versus public safety aspects. And we'll put a link to that episode in the notes if anyone wants to go back and listen. And we should also mention that Finland officially became a member of NATO this week. And it took them approximately 15 seconds to ratify Sweden's application, and uh, Sweden, of course, is still waiting for Hungary and Turkey, and Swedish political analysts have noted that the court's decision on Quran burnings is not amazing news for a government that hasn't wanted to ruffle Turkish feathers, but it also appears that the Swedish government has now accepted that nothing's going to get done until after the Turkish elections on May 14th, and it seems to be a case of waiting it out. Uh, We're going to move on now to a somewhat related story. Last week, the highly respected SOM Institute at Gothenburg University released its annual report. And one of this year's sections asked how fragile Sweden's democracy is. And the responses left the researchers behind it quite concerned. Uh, This part of the survey was actually carried out by leading academics at Uppsala University. And the reason it's related to the Quran burning story is that the researchers outlined a whole list of things that are stress testing Swedish democracy at the moment. And that was one of them. Can you tell us more about this, James? What are the threats to an open and democratic society that the study talks about?
3: Well, there are a few things. First of all, foreign attempts to undermine democracy. So foreign powers that are interfering in Swedish affairs to um, try and undermine democracy here. Then you have Swedish homegrown extremists of different kinds. Everything from Islamic extremists to people like um, people like Rasmus Paladin. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some of these are, you know, interlinked with the issues of foreign extremism. So you can have domestic extremists who who are working together or, or, or in symbiosis with 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 foreign powers. And then you have the third issue, which which this survey focused most on, which is the threat from within. That's to say, Swede's own attitudes to democracy, mm. which um, was 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 perhaps the most surprising. Aspect of this uh, survey, of this study.
0: And the researchers sent questions to 26,000 people in Sweden and around half responded. And what they found was that when they asked general questions about freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, an overwhelming majority of respondents were in favour, but they wanted to find out what happened when they asked people to choose between security and democracy. What was the outcome there?
3: Well, this is the classic question when it, when um, trying to gauge the strength of democracy. The fact that many people prioritise security over democracy is often used by authoritarian leaders to gain power. It's mm-hmm. so like, you'll be safe, you won't be able to influence uh, politics as much, but you will, be, you, will be, you will be safe. And in Sweden, according to this survey, a majority, that's 53%, yeah. would choose security over democracy if forced to make a choice. Mm. Of course, they would rather have both. But if forced to make a choice, they would choose security over democracy.
0: And the study then asked if respondents thought that democracy should be temporarily put on hold to deal with a range of societal issues, and how many times it would be acceptable to pause democracy. What were the findings there?
3: It showed that in many cases, a majority of Swedes would be willing to put democracy on pause, to put democracy on hold in order to deal with other issues. Increasingly, people place democracy in opposition to crime, economic well-being, the environment, or things like pandemics. Uh, if you ask a general question, people support things like free speech and freedom of association. Are you in favor of these things? Oh yes, we're in favor of these things. But if you ask people if it should be possible to pause democracy for a a pandemic, 70% said yes to that. About Mm -hmm. 60% said you should be able to do so to tackle climate or environmental issues. And a similar number said the same for criminality. About 50% said said you could pause it for a financial crisis or for integration issues. And about 40% said you could pause democracy to tackle sex discrimination. Only 18% of people who responded to this said democracy should never be paused. Mm. There was a little bit of difference depending on how people stood politically. So you can see that people who supported the Green or the Left Party, so on the left part of the political spectrum, were more inclined to pause democracy to tackle, say, sex discrimination. And Sweden Democrat or moderate voters were more inclined to pause it to, for instance, tackle, criminality but large proportions of all parties voters were willing to pause it for all reasons
0: and they didn't really define what what they meant by that that was left to the to the
3: respondents it was left it was left to the respondents but um yeah it was sort of what the, they meant by pausing the, what, democracy. what they meant by pausing democracy i mean you you could interpret that as saying, well um, they were willing to sort of have what elections cancelled or or does it does it mean that you do people people interpret it as meaning well we're, we're willing to pause some forms of civil civil liberties it wasn't it wasn't entirely spelled out
0: so what were the researchers' main conclusions after they had looked at all the data?
3: Um, the way that the researchers put it was they said that democracy is no longer a unifying, overarching ideology in Sweden. That's to say it's not it's not it's not an ideology that is shared by everybody and that we can all agree on. And their conclusion from that is that democracy is in trouble. In Sweden, as in many other countries, they were at pains to point out that this is not a a, a development that is unique to Sweden. Or far yeah. from it, we've seen it in many other places, mm. in many other democracies. And so people were increasingly seeing democracy not as a good thing in and of itself, but rather a means to an end. And one I th- one interesting thing that the uh, study leader said was that many politicians were making this worse by mixing the question of democracy with spe- with specific political questions. Mm. So, for example, by saying, gender equality is a question of democracy. And that that potentially weakens democracy by mixing up the, the mechanism of democracy mm. with particular political questions. He also pointed out that around the world, democracy seems to have a half-life. That is to say, the longer it's been around, the more people take it for granted, stop believing in it. Therefore, it, 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 becomes, it becomes weakened. So you know, the fact that Sweden has a long history of democracy might not entirely work in its favour when, when it comes to pre- protecting and preserving it. In fact, it might do the opposite.
1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: that Yeah, uh, let's turn to drugs now.
3: <laughs> frankly, Gosh, after some of, never, the, some, of the, never some of the
0: problems we've had in the studio this morning, I'm, I'm tempted. <laughs> Sweden is known for its zero-tolerance approach to narcotics going back several decades. To learn more about the history of Swedish attitudes to drugs, I spoke this week with Johan vik a reporter with public broadcaster SVT and the author of a book called Vieros Aldrig. Or We'll Never Give Up, which has the strapline How Sweden Lost the War on Drugs. And in the book, he talks about how Sweden formulated its drug free society vision in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And we'll listen in a moment to an excerpt where Johan Viklin talks about the social climate in which the zero tolerance approach took shape. We'll also hear him talk about how the law hasn't changed in three decades and in some respects is about to get tougher, while also stressing that Sweden has introduced a stronger harm reduction element to its drug policies in recent years. And finally, we'll get his opinion of the Christian Democrat MEP, Sara Hüttedal's recent interview calling for the legalisation of cannabis and and whether it marks a turning point in the Swedish drug debate.
5: You have to understand that Sweden in the 80s, this is really hard for people that have come from outside, maybe mm. in the 90s or even later on. Sure. We were a really isolated country, right? Yeah. Far up north, homogenous in, yeah. in a way that we are not today. Sure. Far from multicultural. We had a public service monopoly. We had like SVT, Sveriges Radio, <laughs> yeah. and, and some newspapers. Yeah. we didn't we didn't have a, a a plethora of media so to say yeah. uh, and and we also had this uh, like history of social engineering and, and and sort of so a lot of people thought that we could reach this drug-free society mm. but then reality came <laughs> so in the 90s we, we we joined the eu yeah what that meant for the open borders and, and and stuff like that and also culture came the culture the became globalized in a way that it hadn't been Mm. in the the 90s new drug cultures came Uh, we got the rave scene coming from first the u.s and then to uh, to great britain england and and over here in the 90s and later on we we got the internet and 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 all all that so but it was like a couple of decades there that we thought we had a solution Mm. and we thought that we were the ones that were uh, so to say progressive and the other countries they had just given up and in a way they had because if you look at like the Dutch the Netherlands, that was like the the symbol for harm reduction and and another drug policy. They led the way in the in the from the seventies, eighties, and nineties. They were really open with it that the drug problem. It, that's a Inevitable problem in an open modern society. Mm. We can try to minimize the harms on the individuals and the society, but we can't eliminate it. And in Sweden, we thought we could eliminate it.
0: Yeah. And just if we go back to the 70s, when this uh, tougher policy was implemented, were all of the mainstream political parties behind this shift?
5: Uh, we could say another important thing was in the late 70s, uh, Social Democrats lost their power. Yeah. They had been in power for almost 40 years. Imagine that the parties to the right they formed a coalition and and for them drug policy crime that was more important it also became a shift from society is ill and that's why people are using drugs right yeah. to no this is an individual problem we have to be more tough on it and that's what i'm talking about this whole shift between the 70s and the 80s as you can see in other countries too so but what this led to that uh, socialdemokraterna they said okay we can have tougher laws and we can have all this if we also put a lot of money on on care uh, and uh, and all that uh, so in a way w- researchers are talking about this massive drug policy was now mm. forming because sweden also in the late 70s in the 80s we had a lot of money yeah. to put in welfare it was yeah. not like today so f- of course politics was a part of this mm. and also you can see that it was the parties to the right mostly moderaterna and then liberalerna yeah then they were named Folkpartiet. Those were the the parties that was pushing for this uh, law to uh, prohibit drug use, mm. and uh, Social Democrats didn't want that law. Then something happened when when the law was in place and, and everything. Then something happened and Social Democrats was okay with it.
0: And, okay, so they never tried to roll it back.
5: No, and and why I'm talking about this law is really important because that's what's being debated discussed now, and that's also what our politicians do not. Want to handle because <laughs> it's this law has over 30 years yeah it's, it's over 30 years old but has never been evaluated also our new um, coalition have now said that it's not going to be the thing is in socialdemokraterna you had a lot of people in socialdemokraterna that had invested a lot in the drug-free society he mm. had morgan johansson You had, you had a lot of, of people so ideology was was also a big part of why they did not want to evaluate the law. But I think now with the new coalition with Pidöpartierna, it's more about not showing any weakness regarding right. crime, right? So it, it's not so much we hate drugs, but uh, in fact, they will strengthen the law. Uh, I don't know if you have written about this, but from this summer low-level dealing of drugs, like any amount will get you a minimum of six months in jail. Right. I wouldn't have guessed that's what, where we're going. <laughs> for. Uh, Last couple of years, so in a way we're going into a, a kind of Swedish-ish uh, war on drugs era. That that in, in a way reminds, especially this low low level dealing, minimum penalties about about the U.S. in the eighties. Mm. But we'll see how this will. Play out because we don't even have like place in the in the prisons now. So so we have to build a lot more prisons.
0: We saw a TV interview a few weeks ago with the Christian Democrat MEP Sara Whitdahl, where she confessed to using cannabis in countries where it's not illegal. Yeah, and and she argues for the decriminalisation of cannabis, and she very much doesn't have her party's backing there. But
5: do you think Sweden is ready for that conversation? Mm-hmm. Actually, she's arguing for regulated cannabis even, not just decriminalized. Right. She, she wants to legalize cannabis. Yeah. So that was one step further even. And she also talked about the Swedish drug policy in general, and we need to evaluate it mm. better. And she was really critical there. But that has been has been disappearing in, in, the, in the cannabis discussion, so to say. Yeah. And that, that shows us just how symbolic cannabis is also today. It wasn't so strange that it was a relatively young politician mm. that, that said this. You couldn't have a a, a politician that would be 40 plus or 50 plus. couldn't have said this, I reckon. And also, it wasn't a shock that it came from someone that has been down in Europe as a politician. And I've been interviewing her also, and even in her party group, the, the Christian Democrats, people are asking her, why are Sweden doing this policy? Why why so inhumane? Why so hard? And among Swedish christian democrats this is of course a taboo this has sent a shockwave, i would say throughout the party and uh, obviously sweden is not ready to discuss this now. because once again if you look at what we have been discussing we have been discussing if we are going to evaluate the 30 year old law or not mm. and both the last government and this has landed in it. no we're not
0: That was the journalist and author Johan Wick-Leon. He had a lot of really interesting things to say on the subject of Swedish attitudes to drugs. And since I'm off on holiday all next week, we thought we'd run the rest of the interview as a standalone episode next Saturday. So do tune in again if this is something that interests you. Now, Becky, we just heard Johan Wick-Leon predict that there's an awfully long way to go before Sweden thinks about legalising cannabis. Are you surprised at the strength of the resistance to cannabis policy liberalisation here.
4: Yes and no. I think from a Swedish perspective, there's not really a difference between like hard drugs and soft drugs. Everything mm. is drugs, and like cannabis is as bad as heroin, is as bad as cocaine to a Swede. So I think if you see it from that kind of from that light, then I'm, I'm not surprised that there's such a resistance. But I think on a global level or on a, a European level, it is quite surprising because I think there are some some other countries that either have legalised or are considering legalising specifically cannabis for various reasons. So I think it'll be interesting to see what Sweden does on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it stays illegal for a long time.
0: Now, for anyone who listens to the full interview next week, there's a bit where I tell Johan Viklim about uh, how when I first moved to Sweden, I tried to have a conversation with my new Swedish friends about recreational drug use. And it was like I had summoned a demon. I was like their moods darkened and they completely shut down the conversation. I was kind of shocked. But what we unfortunately didn't get on the recording was when he subsequently asked me what age my friends were. And I said, so same as me, born in the mid to late 1970s. And he said that explains a lot because those were exactly the children who were exposed to the most heavy-handed propaganda at school that convinced them at an early age of what Becky was just talking about, that cannabis was as bad as any other drug and it was a dangerous gateway to much worse things. And Emma, you're a decade or so younger than me, I think. You don't have to confirm or deny, we'll just say that's that's how it is. (laughs) Uh, what was it like for you growing up? Were you terrified of cannabis or was it not still being talked about so much in those terms by the time you went to school?
2: You know, I've been trying to think about that, but I can't really remember. So I don't think it was that that mm. big of a deal. I think we mainly thought about it as a kind of relic from the 1970s, like, like old hippies and stuff. But I don't think we as school children were sort of warned that much about, about cannabis. I remember being massively anti-smoking cigarettes as a child, so I was probably conditioned into thinking that. But drugs? I don't remember it really being a thing when I was growing up. But I did grow up in a fairly small Swedish town, and I was a squeaky clean geek.
0: So. <laughs> How about you, James? You weren't a squeaky clean geek, were you? Drugs have never
3: been my thing. <laughs> um, but how, how did you? Let me put that on the record in case my mother is listening. <laughs> um, but I was surprised when, when I, I was very surprised when I came to Sweden that basically how illib- illiberal liberal Sweden was on many on, on, on many issues with very little focus on. Personal liberties in things that might be called sort of the sin areas. You know, mm. it was if it was drugs, alcohol, sex, prostitution, gay saunas. You know, well we'll just ban them all or restrict them. Hugely, um, and, and you know, in comparison to other Protestant Northern European countries like Denmark uh, or the Netherlands, um, taking a, a very sort of puritanical and kind of old school moralistic view, which was sort of there where you kind of which you kind of dress up in, in a kind of sort of social democratic, folkhem's kind of clothing, but ultimately it's it's kind of in many respects old school moralism that still survived from this from the Swedish agrarian society. I would I would argue.
2: Though I remember. The British tabloids being shocked when they found out that a lot of Premier League footballers were taking snus, the Swedish moist tobacco that you put under your lip. The teabag
4: style pouches ruining the Premier League.
2: (laughs) And in Sweden, that's very common. So maybe we're all kind of puritanical about different things. We're maybe all
3: Puritanic, but I mean Puritanic about different things. Absolutely, snus is a national religion, and you will find very few politicians who would want to restrict the use of snus in any way at all. Um, in, in, in comparison to things like uh, smoking tobacco, for example, uh, which you know now they've they've clamped down quite significantly on. It's very hard to smoke even in on restaurant terraces. You've got to be 10 meters away or something from a re- restaurant terrace if you want to have a cigarette. So yeah, they've um, they but but snus is practically encouraged, and you have a lot of Swedish politics. Politicians wanting to um, lobby to make it um, possible to sell snooze in in, in in other European countries as well. I also, remember games of meetings with, where people would snooze all the way through meetings, and you'd be like, they had some lump in their upper lip, and then they'd sort of reach their reach their their finger under their upper lip halfway through the meeting and pull out the snooze bag and put it on the table. <laughs> which, which when when you when I was in meetings with people who were you know foreigners who who, who, who were just visiting Sweden. <laughs> little bit shocked. What the hell is this person doing? What is that thing? It's a very widely used uh, product in Sweden.
4: It feels like you can't even discuss the fact that snus might have health issues, might cause health issues. Like, I've seen so many people, and you're like, oh, well, does it cause, like, increased rates of throat cancer or lip cancer? People are like, no, 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 snooze is much healthier. Much healthier than cigarettes. No, <laughs> no, nope, nope, it's healthy. We can't ban it. <laughs> it's like this, this just, it's on this little pedestal.
3: Yeah, and going back to this, this, this idea of drugs, you know, this illiberalism on drugs and this uh, illiberalism on alcohol and, and, you know, sex and prostitution and other stuff. It's this, part of this consensus thing in Sweden, isn't it? It's like people have decided that, you know, that snus is snus is okay, and we like snus, and therefore, and there is consensus around that, and you can't really question it. And it's the same with drugs, and it's the same with alcohol. It's just like, we form the consensus, that is the consensus. If you deviate from a consensus, you are gonna be in a minority of one or in almost every conversation with Swedes. And you'll, very, you'll find it very hard to find someone to back you up, even if you're making what you think is a reasonable point. So beware and have your facts lined up before you start launching into one of those discussions with a bunch of Swedes, I would say.
4: Richard had actually written a great article on how to argue like a Swede, or how to argue without losing your Swedish friends. So if you, if you want to find out how to hold a discussion about snooze or cigarettes or drugs, then uh, you can read that article. It's got some good tips.
0: And that's all for today. Thanks, as always, to our members whose support is what makes this podcast happen. And if you like the podcast and you have a moment, please help us get the word out by leaving a review or rating it or sharing it with people you think would enjoy it. Our panellists today were James Savage, Emma Lovegrain and Becky Waterton. I'm Paul Amani, and we'll be back again next Saturday with the full interview with Johan Viclian. Until then,
1: take care. That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.